so I just kind of felt like as a dude who's about to babble like a fucking idiot about this volume of case files, I feel like I'm well qualified for that. citizens and welcome to episode five of the perpetually ongoing drock in which myself graham mcmillan and my beautiful and glamorous co-host jeff lester read through the complete case files of judge dread uh we're at volume five this time oh i'm supposed to say that where we're coming from we're coming from reg dwight's block oh, and nice. i might be saying that because i saw rocket man this weekend two thumbs up from me <laughs> Moving on. We're doing uh, <laughs> Volume 5 of the Complete Case Files, which is, I think it's fair to say, the good stuff. I am completely comfortable in describing what we're about to cover as that. It's actually covering progs 208 through 270. That's a lot of progs of 2080 from 1981 through 1982. Jeff. Graham. Am I alone in saying it's the good stuff? Uh, yes, you are. L- let me just mention that for people who uh, are paying attention, it's also the the years of Dread's years, um, twenty one oh three to twenty one oh four. I just thought I'd mention it, Graham, since you were kind enough to cover eighty one, eighty two. Uh, yeah, no, it, this is not the good stuff. This is the great stuff. It's it's genuinely amazing, isn't it? Like we did, I think volume three was the one where we were like, oh, this just great this is this yeah. is really good mm-hmm. and reading through this volume in particular mm-hmm. there are like maybe two filler stories in the entire thing and like i was saying before it covers like 65 weekly episodes of, of the series yeah and it's they really rarely put a foot wrong and there's some legitimately classic stories in here one after another after another after another yeah yeah Absolutely. They're, they're once, once it's on a roll, and honestly, how do I put it? I felt like all of this was incredibly strong. Even the stuff that I remember as being fillers, which I guess would be like the problem with Sonny Bono at the beginning. And well, I, I, I would argue against that. I would say the fillers come midway through the book. We get done with the... Uh, the uh, return of judge death right and then there's like two stories in there between that and the hot dog run right that that feel you know filler-esque but even those are of such high quality well and that's exactly my point is is nothing hmm, how do i put it what's amazing is is nothing feels like the problem with sunny bono is fantastic it's a great story it's just a it's one of the few vol- it's one of the few stories in here that's kind of a done in one literally yeah, so it, it's weird there's much like volume 2 mm-hmm. uh, where volume 2 was essentially two big stories mm-hmm. this feels very much like a piece yes you know it it while it is an anthology of you know more than 50 episodes it feels very much like there's a coherent story yeah you know that there's and that story is uh for me at least the instability of the blog system mm-hmm. and how that is taken advantage of by outside forces, which leads to the apocalypse war. Yes. And the apocalypse war is like the back half of the book. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and in a way, in that sense, the 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 trouble with Sonny Bono, the problem with Sonny Bono is a... It's like a 
like foreshadowing of the whole thing. Exactly. It lays the groundwork sort of the way that we've had previous block war stories in the previous volumes. And uh, one of the things that it's, I worry about, you know, waxing generally since I feel, you know, this is going to be such a hard beast to wrestle to the ground. But one of the things that I do think is an amazing accomplishment here is uh, how much so much of this volume is a string of payoffs for for uh regular readers like yes continuity that is played not just in a a weird in a way that is so substantially different from the way that I'm used to experiencing it in superhero continuity but begins a just a a, a it becomes an incredible form of uh, shorthand, you know, in, yes. the, in the way of it can deliver just a full punch that I think probably would succeed on its own, the, the pieces in themselves. But when you've got the extra context, one of the things that is amazing is by the time you get to block mania, it starts off reading almost like a regular block war story. And then as it grows and grows and grows, you're like, what the hell am I looking at? And even the fact that it's, you know, that Enid Blyton block or Ricardo Montalban <laughs> block or God help me, Charlton Heston block, you know, these are, these are actual, you know, sort of disposable throwaway names that, um, that nonetheless stick and and it's weird there's an actual emotional attachment to them yes so. yes it, it's so so strange one of the things that I when I talk about Judge Dredd today you know the strip that's been running for what 43 years right um, one of the things I always talk about is that Judge Dredd can play the long game like nothing else in comics yeah yeah absolutely and even here the strip's been running for five years and it already feels like it's playing the long game yes yeah. You know, which is genuinely amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like there's a part in the Apocalypse War. And, you know, I feel that the majority of this episode is going to be talking about the Apocalypse War. Oh, yeah. But there's a part in the Apocalypse War where the first place to get nuked is the block that is rebuilding itself from having been nuked yes. in the last volume. Yes. The Black Atlantic story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's something very funny about that. And also this volume is very much dread as dark humor. Like, holy shit. Oh, yeah. Like, the humor in this volume in particular yes. is shockingly dark. It really um, is, yeah. But, but you know, it, there's, there is something funny in the first place that gets destroyed as the, part of the Apocalypse War is the block that is in the middle of rebuilding from having previously been nuked by the same people. Yes, yeah. And, and even has the person standing out on the scaffolding saying oh no not again which yes, is i know it's so it's, fucking funny like but it's also like so dark yeah because it's literally nuclear apocalypse yeah you know which is is shocking yeah um and i'll, I'll you know when we get to apocalypse war later remind me to talk about the fact that i was reading this at the same time as i'm watching chernobyl on hbo oh jesus christ oh, that's just it right yeah but no it's it's there is like an incredible dark humor here there is an incredible already playing of a long game mm -hmm. at five years yeah. 
which you know by the time you get to 43 years is is an entirely much more complex thing right but also because i have read like you know quote-unquote today's judge dread there's also reading these stories and knowing that there are seeds in these stories for things that play out four decades from this point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right like it, I'm, it's a spoiler, but also by the time that we get to these things, you'll all have forgotten. Mm-hmm. But like Small House, that which which was in the, uh, the 2018 last year, mm-hmm. and the collections in September, and is is amazing. I mean, it's genuinely just shockingly good comics. It has its roots in the Apocalypse War mm. in a way that when you're reading the Apocalypse War, obviously you don't miss it because it's kind of a retcon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also it's impossible to read the small house and then read the apocalypse war again and not go this thing which is treated as maybe not a joke mm-hmm. but treated very glibly mm-hmm. will literally come back and be a plot engine decades from now in fact what dread does at the end of the apocalypse war which again is treated relatively glibly oh, yeah. in the story at the time yeah it's the plot engine for the day of chaos storyline it's a plot engine for, you know, trifecta. It's a plot engine for all these other things. Well, the we'll we'll get to it, but part of the 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 very end of the apocalypse war makes me gasp out loud for precisely those sorts of reasons. Yeah, it could because it is so shocking a decision. That's not actually where I'm going, but let's okay. save it until we get there. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. But no, for for me, it's not just that these comics are all amazing in Volume 5. Right. It's not just that you have, I mean, legitimately classic stories, and honestly, classic panels. Gaze into the Fist of Dread is in this book. Yes, yes. You know? mm-hmm. um, it's also that it feels like this is the volume where world building and dramatizing the world building reach this perfect balance mm. you know mm. like you get like you said the, the very first story in the volume the problem with sunny bono mm-hmm. is foreshadowing whether intentionally or otherwise block mania mm-hmm. but it also sets up things so the block mania works yes yeah you know so. mm-hmm. it puts things in place so the block mania can work mm-hmm. and you get that all the way through. I mean, even after you get to the problem with Sonny Bono, it then goes into the the, the crime files. Yes. Yeah, the mega like rackets. Like, yeah. You know, a sequence of stories where essentially it's like, you know, case files mm-hmm. for for different types of crimes mm-hmm. in Mega City One. And and that, you know, in many ways, like those are expositionary, but they are all dramatized wonderfully. Yes. You know, you you read them as adventure stories, you read them as crime stories, even as there are new concepts being brought in, there are new ideas being brought in that will again be returned again and again and again and again throughout the history of Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but but you don't read them as, well, they're just setting up a framework. Mm-hmm. You read it as, like, what's a Stooky Glander? You right. know? Right. There's something, I mean, truly breathtaking about the level that Wagner and Grant are working on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, one of the things that I I found curiously obvious now, having basically read like you know volumes one, two, three, four, and then this, mm-hmm. is I felt Grant's presence much more than I previously have when I read these. Yes, stories. yeah, absolutely. In fact, that was one of the things that I was going to say is like for me and i think actually uh listeners have pointed out in the comments threads at the website uh how for example like four benefits from grant's 
presence, but it somehow never really felt like, oh, this is, uh, it, it was just so similar from kind of what we'd had before, but there's something about this volume where it's like, oh, okay, this is Wagner and Grant. There feels like such a presence of something extra that is remarkable because it somehow manages to be even more than what we'd seen in the previous volumes, but somehow still not, how do I put it? Um, not exactly over the top because for me, I feel like my, my usage of the phrase over the top is kind of like, okay, they just stomp on the gas and they go for it. And part of that anything can happen feeling is a little bit of the thrill of over the top is like even the creators know that they're out of control. Yeah. In volume five, what is astounding to me is how everything gets ratcheted up a level. Like you said, the darkness, uh, the the just the humor the everything and yet it doesn't feel out of control in a way and that and is... it really shoots yes like if someone explains the plot of even block mania never mind the apocalypse war yeah but even block mania yeah you'd be like well you know that's the jumping of the shark moment right yeah completely. you know mm -hmm. and then you get to apocalypse war which is like blows all of that out of the water yeah yeah, all but literally. I, but but it never. You're right. It never feels like they've lost control. In fact, just the opposite. Apocalypse War feels like the most coherent of the mega epics. Oh yeah. Maybe ever in Dread. Yeah. I can only think of one that rivals it. Mm -hmm. It's definitely the most coherent of of the ones to date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel entirely in control of the writing. Yeah. 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 No, it's a. It's it's such a stunner. There was a quote in Thrill Power Overload, when I was sort of doing a little bit of the reading about the, trying to get some context for the Apocalypse War and some of the stories in this volume. And it's it's actually a section in the book where they are talking about the creation of uh, Ace Trucking Company. But um, at the end of that section, it's when they first started working together, Grant had asked Wagner, what was the secret of writing good stories? He said, take everything to its logical extreme, then push it into absurdity, and then bring it back a wee bit towards logic. Don't let it get too absurd. And I, I just feel that one of the things that is astounding about this volume is how they're really able to sort of, I guess in the collaborative process, push everything too far and then figure out just how to pull it back just this side so that you get like this unbelievable feeling of control, which somehow makes all the rest of it spilling out so remarkable. Yeah, it, it's it's very strange. Like, again, what they're doing in this volume and the idea that they wrote all of these yes. comics yeah. and all of them on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah. Is no. right. Genuinely like it's an achievement. I mean it's 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 an achievement that it's very hard to compare to anyone else. Well, I think this is the the thing that um I, I you know, I should save this for when we get to the specifics. But as someone who has 
heard about the Apocalypse War for years, if not decades, and finally reading it. Oh, and, had you never read it before? No, no, I oh, never okay. had. Yeah, I never had. Um, my whole like, yeah, I read up to volume five of the case files. It was like, I apparently read up to volume three, Graham. So, uh, reading five now, like getting to the end of the apocalypse war for me is unbelievably edifying because it, I think there's an incredibly good case to be made that, um, it is more influential on a generation of British comics writers than than Alan Moore is. Like for uh, us Americans, it's kind of like, oh yeah, there's more, there's Gaiman, you know. And then of course you got Morrison, who's dealing under Moore's shadow. But like, it's very weird. Like you see the lip service from a ton of British writers, but for me, I'm like. Finishing the Apocalypse War, even partway through the Apocalypse War, the the easiest one, and of course the one that's most openly acknowledged, is you know Garth Ennis being like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is th- this is where I came from. But for me, it's actually really hard. Like I'm like, this is where Warren Ellis comes from. Like this mm-hmm. is this is this volume to me feels like where the provocateur angle of Mark Miller comes from. Like there's a lot of the British writers. Miller swears that he did not read 2008. Right. Which I'm like, part of me is you're like, like, you're like, I just don't believe. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, if there's, thank God, if there's ever anyone that's very easy to disbelieve uh, it's, it's Miller. But yeah, I think I, to me, there's just so much that comes out of this where it's like uh, an uh, an entire, like I said, just I feel like a whole bunch of, of British comic writers that moved into the American market, I'm like, oh, these guys make a lot more sense now. It's a lot easier to see where the, not not just the cheek, uh, but also the, and not just the cold, dark humor, but also... There's there's stuff that's happening in the Apocalypse War where, on the one hand, again, looking at the villains of the Apocalypse War is such a like a scene where Ennis gets his templates. Like, yes, yes. So wholeheartedly. But honestly, I feel that the use of how do I put it? techno techno babble slash mega wonk for horrifying or to awe that is such a a cornerstone of Ellis's work just to me seems like so heavily derived from the weaponry and warfare being used in the apocalypse war, you know, I, I I will say yes to a degree, Mm. Um, but we'll get to that when we talk about the apocalypse war properly, because I think, and this is also fed by the same influences that go into the Apocalypse War. Oh, interesting. Okay. But we'll get there. But yes. playing off that point, I do want to say that I think that there are um, two schools of early 2080. Mm-hmm. And that's the Pat Mills School and the Wagner Grant School. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, specifically the material in this volume mm-hmm. is the Wagner Grant School's uh, peak. 
Yeah. I, I, I think that this is it. This is the, the platonic ideal of what people think about when they think about early 2000 AD outside of Mills. Well, so, and and again, this is, this is a, this is one of those things where uh, I, I found myself like wishing I was more of a scholar because part of what I feel is going on in the Apocalypse War really made me want to dig up uh, Pat Mills's invasion, which I know is a collected, but I have not picked up. And and the contrast of it, because I do feel that the Apocalypse War is a again to to look at through power overload uh rogue trooper debuts during the time of this volume right it, yes yeah it, actually the first appearance of of rogue trooper it's like 230 or something two i want to say it's 228 might be what's mentioned it because because throw power overload talks about some of the editors thinking that the volume is just a is like as close to the perfect prog as you can get like the, everyone complains there's never a perfect prog but the debut of rogue trooper happens the same time as like part 3 or 4 of the return of judge death and nemesis is going on and there's something else that's happening everyone's like yeah if it wasn't for you know what the one lamentable serial storyline that nobody liked it's it's as close to perfect as you can get one of the things that i was reading in through power overload about the creation of rogue trooper is that the editor of 2000 ad uh mcmanus i want to say steve mcmanus so, yeah steve mcmanus yeah um had done conducted or had gotten the results of a survey from readers of 2000 ad and what they were really interested in was future war right so rogue trooper grows out of this like desire to see future war and to me i feel that that the apocalypse war is dread but it is also it is also very much future war and it also makes sense because it is also because, you know, Escara comes in here, he's huge from battle. And, of course, battle is, like, enormous seller. Like, war comics are big in Britain, so it makes sense. So it's kind of all honed um, when you get to the Apocalypse War to essentially take a British comic staple and kind of, you know, go to the next level with it. And, of course, mm-hmm. it really does just work like even me just sort of only knowing that context in the abstract the thing that is stunning to me about five about reading volume five is when you get into the apocalypse war it just it fucked my shit up and i can only imagine what it's like for kids who are like yeah i want to read about future war and wagner and grant are like well we've got you covered because we exactly we've got your future war right here yeah but by the way you know hold on yeah right exactly Exactly. So uh, I guess with that in mind, do we want to talk general, like do quick summaries about um, the, you know, the other stories building up to Block Mania slash Apocalypse War? Do we want to talk about favorite stories? I'm not sure sure if we necessarily want to do summaries as such, but, you know, there there is a a drumbeat 
mm-hmm. going towards really block mania is the start of the story mm-hmm. like uh apocalypse wars 25 episodes block mania is nine episodes so you're yeah. talking like a 34 episode run right and you do as we were saying before have this really long you know Again, perhaps intentionally, perhaps unintentionally, foreshadowing of it throughout mm-hmm. everything leading up to that. Mm-hmm. You so you have the problem with Sonny Bono showing like here are like here's here's a block being driven insane, mm-hmm. and here's the city deaf unit whose job is to like to protect the block and to to be the blocks. Uh, you know, not police force. Obviously, that's the judges, right? But like inherent defenders yes like in, in, embedded defenders is a better way of putting it mm-hmm. um so you, you have you know you have that you have uh the the there's the mafia war in one of the the crime file stories mm-hmm. about like the civil war happening in, in mega city one mm-hmm. you have these 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 various things going on you have the hot dog run which oh god does, the hot dog run is fabulous it, which which may actually be my favorite non yeah block mania slash apocalypse war thing in this book yeah. but it doesn't necessarily play directly into those two stories but it does because it features such giant who gets killed in block mania yes giant is you know perhaps the highest profile supporting character that the series has yep. at this point. And so it's almost like a send-off to Giant, even though you don't realize that at the time. Mm-hmm. So you have this weird thing where it feels like they really are getting things into into place. Mm-hmm. And so there is this weird... One of the things that American comics do now, or superhero comics in America, I should say, do now is like, you know, the road to name of event. Right. And it's always artificial because, like, the branding's on the cover, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, this is going to feed into the next event. What this volume does is present the road to the Apocalypse War without anyone knowing that the Apocalypse War is coming. Yes. And so it feels organic when the Apocalypse War arrives, but also when you reread it knowing what's coming, mm-hmm. these things do leap out at you. Mm-hmm. And you it's a moment of like, oh, shit, of course. Right. This this matters. This counts. Mm-hmm. This is a thing, and so that's that was honestly one of my my primary things when I was reading this book again. That it is continually just prepping the reader mm-hmm. for what's coming, and then you know we talked about the crime file stories before. Uh, they prep new readers as well because they're basically like this is what Mega City One is. This is what the judges do. This is this is the world they're living in. But we're literally preparing to literally blow it up. Well, there's that. But I also want to think, I want to say that, that the Mega Rackets does a wonderful job of kind of being a miniature version of that sort of long game that ends up coming to fruition in the Apocalypse War. Because one of the things that's great about uh, the Mega Rackets is it starts off looking at a different aspect of crime in sort of each prog. Some of them are multi-parts, but you, and each crime is more or less associated with a different crime lord, like Slick Ike, Colorado, or uh, the the family that is manufacturing the illegal umpty, which is the, God, is it the Gab family? What the hell is it? I, I forget. Oh, where is it? Who's it? Augie, right. So the Augie family shows up. So 
you meet all these guys and then what happens is the the mafioso the 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 mafioso which is a pun that honestly stopped me in my tracks yes right the alien mafioso are called the mafioso yes the mafioso come in and essentially start this crime war and one of the things that's great about it is all the things that seem like a loosely thematically self-contained story suddenly you get the characters that you've been uh introduced to over the course of the last you know months several months and suddenly they're getting killed like you know the 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 mafioso like end up burning another member of the Augie family and i colorado is there trying to negotiate with uh with what's his name gans you know it's and and just as all of that stuff like all those little loose things that you're like oh because because there is the expectation that it's going to be free floating continuity is used because it's not expected as an extra tool or weapon in the creator's toolbox and it ends up being profoundly powerful in to me at a at a very small scale in a like oh that's really amazing that these characters that i'm sort of invested in even if just seeing them as a cartoon is like now they're gone like the apocalypse war then takes that and cranks it up like you know at levels beyond that so i mean so you you go from the crime block war which ends up being its own little mini mega epic and then you go into uh judge death lives which is a four-part story illustrated by boland and is amazing to me because it's it it almost feels like the I don't want to say it's the throwaway story, but because everything else is keeping you so grounded in Mega City One, and this sort of again is, it's a sequel. So it's like Anderson's back, Death is back. Then they make them, they throw in the genius of throwing in the other dark judges. You know, Fear, mm-hmm. Fire, and Mortis is. I mean, it just feels like incredibly rich. And again, you get stuff where you've got an entire block, Billy Carter block, gets sealed off and the judges just run rampant. Just the yeah. amount of of mass death is so like casually presented and therefore doubly shocking. Um mm-hmm. and and that really also, again, sort of keys you in for when the apocalypse war happens and the death count starts happening at truly terrifying levels. Yeah, the death count in the apocalypse war is is shocking. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I actually made a note. The, death count, the first death count given is literally the, exactly the same number. As is given during Blockmania. Wow. The first death count they give is exactly the same number. Really? As who died during Blockmania. No. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, Wagner Grant are either A, very lazy, mm-hmm. and are like 150 million people sounds like a lot, sure. 
right. or they are purposefully doing this mm -hmm. to make you realize just how many people are being affected by what's going on. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just, it is, it's kind of, oof. Uh, so after after we get um, the return of Judge Death, we've got a two-parter about uh, what's his name, Queg Queeg, who uh, is a dude who goes footsie, but in a very um, Bernard Getzy kind of way. He basically is a dude with a gun, and it's and it's like it, you know we've seen the regular guy is driven insane by the future world story yes. before it's actually in the first volume yes uh we see the first one this doesn't play out the same no like reading this i was like this feels like you know a twitter troll with a gun yes do you know what i mean like and in a way that was uncomfortable yeah yeah in a way that you started like you sensed the the um the self-righteousness and the the self-pitying right and it played out differently and it played out all too real right very much so i mean and again it's the it's they they keep referring to him as having gone footsie but when you see other people in future other things where it's a citizen who's been affected by future shock um it's played more there's an element of laughs for it and an element of cartoonishness and this is literally someone with a gun opening up in a crowd and shooting or killing anyone who disrespects him. And of course, Dredd literally shoves the guy aside at the end of part one and he wanders off in the crowd and is like, OK, now I'm I, it's just all I'm obsessed with is killing Dredd. And it, it's an interesting uh approach to the story because you're sort of like this is just a guy with a gun like there's no real point where you're necessarily worried about um about dread but unlike the other stories which felt like you know kind of dark versions of almost will eisner stories this so desaturates the personality of the guy that it's just to me, it's kind of depressing and chilling because, like I said, I feel like they were probably thinking of someone like Bernard Goetz or maybe they'd watch Taxi Driver. But the sad part is out of all this stuff, like the one where it's like a guy who feels like he ha he's not being treated, a white man who feels like he's not being treated with enough respect goes in with weapons and just starts shooting people in crowds is horrifically fucking timely for 2019 yes. you yeah know? exactly and and to the point where it's all too believable now mm -hmm. and you wonder in 82 did it read like as curiously science fictional mm -hmm. as as other things in this book mm -hmm. i mean obviously not one of the things about this book is for me there's also a lot more science fiction yes that I, I traditionally associate with Dread. Right. Like there are there are like four different monster stories, mm -hmm. and they're aliens or like it's the the what they call it, the Gilamunja. Yes, the, the Gilamunja from the from the the cursed earth. Mm -hmm. But like they're outright monster stories, you know. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that seemed uh, it seemed curious to be honest. It seemed like uh, you know again 
2008 at the time had a, a ratings system by which I mean the reader was invited to actually write in their favorite three stories of the issue right uh, as a form and I'm wondering if like you know monsters were basically you know scoring really high and they're like we'll do monsters right um or if editors were like we think monsters are the next big thing but it's odd to see how many monster stories there are here you get the the Gilamunja, you get uh, judge death you get the stooky glanders mm-hmm. um and there's another one uh, oh the the mafia the morfiosa right right the, the alien mafia right um uh, which is odd. Like, it's genuinely odd. It feels like a lot for, for essentially a year's worth of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I do wonder, is there a... a um, like, did the idea of, like, a man just going crazy and shoot people, shooting people up read as unreal mm-hmm. as, as those other stories in a way that, like, now it just doesn't. Now it just reads real. Well, I don't know. It's a, I do wonder because I... I... I personally think that one of the weird bits about the Diary of a Mad Citizen is how much it is the the most truly American story. Like, I personally feel that, uh, at least based on my understanding, is when these stories were written, like, there's not shooting rampages happening in the U.K., because there's very, very strict gun control, you know. But here in America, like, this sort of stuff seemed extreme, but not anything like, of course, what we've been exposed to over the last, you know, seven or eight years. So I think if I had read this... Even again, thinking like, oh, yeah, Bernie Getz or, oh, yeah, you know, um, that the taxi driver. Oh, sure. The Kitty Genovese. You know, we we had this uh, idea of America as a violent place was so centered on New York, which was in a way the inspiration for Mega City One. But it, it didn't I like just looking at it now. I'm like, yeah, it, I think in a way it did feel what was science fictiony about it was just the idea that someone would be so absolutely callous about human life, you know? And mm-hmm. now sadly it just feels like that's if it like it feels like something we could read about any day of the week. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So You know? Yeah. I, and to the point where and I can't remember where I read this. But but someone was basically talking about like now you don't even get the mass shootings as headlines. Mm-hmm. That's right, right. You know, yeah. The other stories will take priority, even though they're clearly not as important. Yeah, it's it's weird. It it is. It's a very it's a very odd story. That is is one of the ones that I described as filler when I was talking about the filler. Yes. In the middle of the book, that story, and honestly, the the um, Gila Munja story. Yeah. Feels like filler. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially given that it's immediately followed by the hot dog run where right. the Gilliman just show up again. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really odd thing the the, the, um, the sequence of stories is, is very strange. Mm-hmm. So it almost feels like there are two books here. Mm-hmm. There's the pre block mania book. Right. And there's the block mania and apocalypse war book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And pre block mania book is still, if it had been a standalone book, still would be one of the greatest collections of Judge Shedd stories. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing that's amazing about this book is 
like, you know, Block Mania starts on page 180. So you've read like 170 plus pages of superlative dread where it's just like, this is pretty good. Especially, I think, um, the hot dog run is is deeply, deeply satisfying in a way that I think of as quote unquote old dread, I suppose, you know, it's like, here's dread the, for those who, who, you know, it's uh, to quickly summarize, it's the hot dog run is uh, a squad of 12th year cadets from the Academy of law are, given their first experience of action because they are taken out into the cursed earth radiation desert and they are chaperoned by and watched over by two judges. And in this story, it's dread and judge giant and they more or less put them in real life situations and test them. And for it's, I think it's really only two parts, which is amazing because it's so unbelievably dense in a way yeah i I want to say it's three but it is it's a very short story that is nonetheless filled with a lot right no it is it it is filled with a lot but oh yeah you're right it is it's three parts which makes more sense but you know it is a in the course of its of its 18 pages you know you get cadets like getting chewed out by dread and getting comforted by giant. And meanwhile, you get the overly absurd scabby haze and his mutant marauders. And then when the Gila Munja come back in, like, uh, because they've already been introduced, you, you know what they can do. And they have a certain, you know, the idea that they have a rep, the way that they're treated by the cadets makes sense. And you can feel it because, you saw them in the previous episode, it, it almost overpower a bunch of experienced judges because you're kind of like, oh, this whole thing is kind of getting out of hand in a, in a way that part of what's great about the story is it's your experience of those creatures and the world at no mm-hmm. point because Dread's not that type of guy. Dread's not saying like, this is getting out of hand. We're getting into a situation that is actually bigger than what these cadets might be able to handle. But when you're reading it, you're like, oh, this is getting kind of fucked up. And yeah, they're, yeah, they're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, and what, what's I, I want to spin off something you said in a second. But what's also good about the hot dog run for me is it is so brutal. I mean, cadets die, outright die. Yes. Uh, and Dredd's response is so callous. Literally, a cadet dies and he's like, oh, shame he would have passed. Yes. Uh, yeah. But the punchline of the three-parter is 12 go out and two pass that's right um and giant's like oh you know two pass that's really good for you and he's like and dread's like yeah i'm getting soft to my old age mm-hmm. and, which feels again like a wonderful punchline but mm-hmm. also so bleak about yeah. the reality but also true to dread as we yes. know him. yeah the other thing that i want to uh, sort of play off of what you just said is uh, the, the judges do lose against the Gila, the Gilamanja in the mm-hmm. previous story, mm-hmm. and when I said that I felt Grant's presence in this book more, part of it is I feel there is more of a criticism of the judges, mm-hmm. and the judges are less infallible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at something like um, actually specifically the Umpty story mm-hmm. during the Mega 
periods. And they don't actually achieve anything, the judges. Mm-hmm. You know, and the judges are, it's pretty much presented as, you know, umpty candy is the, the metaphor for addiction, for drugs. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much presented as, oh, they can try and close down one lab, but that doesn't make a difference. Yeah, no, like, no, 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 oh, exactly. Someone out selling, there's always going to be someone out there buying. There, that is such a big chunk of the the Mega Rackets storyline. Is is like really early on? Dread says something like, "Oh, there's no way I can catch this guy, and he'll just be out on the streets. The most I can do is cause him the most inconvenience as possible." And you're like, "Wait, what? Like that's just yeah, not like like yeah. Dread, Dreads are hero. Dreads infallible. Dread gets his man right because to this point." He has. He always has. Yes. Yeah. It's... And this volume is the one where yeah. you see the flaws in the system. And honestly, by the time you get to Apocalypse War, you really see the flaws in Dread. Yeah. Like everything becomes much more 3D. And the the structure of the Mega Rackets, the structure of the Crime Files really helps with that. Mm-hmm. Because none of those stories are big epic adventures Mm -hmm. they are just like stories from from the case file Mm -hmm. you know but there's something about that that you and you still see like the city or this the system or people's nature undermines the judges Mm -hmm. in there that really does flesh out this world so much more well, I, you know, it's funny because I think I think up until now there has been a weird, uh, how do I put it? Like you said, almost like oh yeah, it's the nature, it's it's human nature that the essential foolishness of the citizens of Mega City One make them susceptible to so much that the judges more or less have to exist. But it it almost feels like. Uh, up until now, it's sort of um, it's it's a it's a world where the judges are always running around stamping out fires, and as soon as they stamp out one, the next prog, there's another new fire that they go over and stamp out. The the mega rackets is the first time where there is that sort of you know our modern world's concept of corruption entrenched in the system that the judges can't get rid of and it's a little it's a little bit of a shock and i do feel in a way it starts the block mania really has the for me you're kind of destabilized because one of the things that's great about the first part of block mania is you have a situation where somebody drops an ice cream cone uh, or, or as it's called, a, a freezy whip on a member of the Dantana block. And it's someone from Eden, Enid Blyton who did it, you know, and she's like, you bastards, you did it in, on purpose. And she shows up at a, she attends the committee meeting and people are just like, let's have a block war. And she's like, yes, let's attack those bastards at Enid Blyton. And what's amazing is is because it's all presented as you don't really know how much of this is par for the course. You know, like the captions are ridiculously understated in terms of it just sort of seems like everyone's ornery, like everyone's kind of spoiling for a fight 
but in a way that kind of makes it feel like, oh, it's a, um, it's a hot summer, you know, like how much block mania is, um, football hooliganism, like blown up to a cartoonish degree is, is I think part of what makes this story just kind of, um, punch you because for me, because it's like, okay, how much of it is by the time you get to that first part where dreads, like we've got a six block war on our hands. You're aware that that's kind of uh unique, but you don't necessarily get the idea that there's unique for any other reasons other than it's just sort of a perfect storm of events, which is kind yeah. of how the story presents it for the first couple of parts, you know? And again, that fits into what we just read. Yes. The idea that something so small can become so oversized and also that the judges can't deal with it. Right. Like all feels earned. Yeah. And I think that if you'd done Block Mania, honestly, even just at the start of this volume, mm -hmm. it would have felt artificial. Yes, I think, I think so you too. you needed to feel that the judges honestly aren't up to the task. Right. Right, yeah. There's something about Mega Which City is why One. It works so well. Exactly. There's something. You're right. There is a, a the first four volumes is this idea of like things are crazy, but the judges have it. And volume five is where things where control is actually a little bit more of an illusion than you would have previously believed. I think. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, it almost feels as if it's luck mm -hmm. that the judges haven't been overthrown. And there's something about Block Mania, especially as it evolves, mm -hmm. that yeah. you think that, oh, maybe this is the end. Yes. You know, and then that goes into Apocalypse War, which legitimately feels like the end. Yes. There, yeah. there are specific moments that we'll get to where you do feel that they have destroyed the status quo of the this, this strip. Right. and But all of that is earned in the first half of this book. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I can't understate, you know, how good the first half of this book is. Yeah. I do you want to point out two things about the first half of this book before we move on? Yes. It features the, the – oh, actually, it's not true. The, the blog mania features the final Mike McMahon art. That's Dread. right. Mm -hmm. And it also features the final Brian Boland art on Dread. Yes, that is correct. The Brian well, Boland. Them, mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, both of them make their 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 last Dreads mm -hmm. uh, contributions in terms of weekly episodes in this volume, which is kind of nuts. I mean, McMahon does come back years and years and years and years and years later. Yes, but but as an ongoing artist, as part of the regular team of artists. Um, they're gone as of midway through this book. Uh, this book also has Colin Wilson joining mm -hmm. the art team for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, Colin Wilson doing Colin Wilson art with the exception of his dreads, which almost feels like it's traced off of Boland. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah, the the Boland influence, of course, lays heavy, as I think we it's talked really about. It's really heavy. It's, yeah. it's, there's a, a couple of um, Ron Smith scenes even. Yes. Where it feels like he is literally just like looking at Boland's dread, being like, okay, this is the model. This is the model we're working on. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is kind of funny because the rest of Smith's art is so non-Boland. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, like you can see the join. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so as well, which is fascinating with, with Smith in that regards. Yeah, no, the uh, Mike McMahon was driven off the strip according to uh, 
according to Thrill Power Overload, by the first two parts of Block Mania, where he was like, I, I just can't. Like, he was being asked to draw 10,000 individuals, you know, and and he was like, I just, I can't, there's no way I can do this on a weekly deadline. You know, I actually have a note in in my notes that it is no wonder McMahon quit. Yes, exactly, and and there's some because honestly, you can feel the effort on the pages. Yeah, he does the first two chapters of Block Mania, and you really can feel that he is trying to make the crowd scenes feel legit mm-hmm. in a way that you can imagine just being overwhelming. Yeah. Like he puts in the work. He, he really oh, does. He so does. And it's, and it's a shame for me. Cause I, I really adore McMahon's work right before he leaves. There's a page. That's the last page of part one of block mania where everyone is running out of their individual blocks that have been introduced on the previous pages and the work of the design just for the the crowds coming out of Ricky Fulton and Pancho Villa and the Kissin- Henry Kissinger and Betty Crocker, the way that he chooses to use the same lettering style but organized differently for each one of the blocks is is just it's it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's just, yeah. Yes. and honestly, his dread by that point in the strip. Yes, every single appearance, every single panel of his dread feels iconic. Yeah, it's it, just, I mean, so good and also so solid. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, completely. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that's ironic is you and I are talking about how everyone is more or less copying Boland's dread for good reasons, but. Boland in Through Power Overload talks about McMahon as the definitive dread artist. And, he, you know, Boland goes on to say, you know, whether with too much modesty or not, he's kind of like, I'm just a tracer. I'm just a copier. Like people take the bits and pieces and I refine them. But McMahon is the guy who is creating this stuff in a way that all of that sets the template for all of us. You know, and and God, those last those two parts of 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 block mania really do kind of make you feel that. So um, but, you know, I I do think there is something about the one one of the weird things about dread, particularly with block mania, is not only am I completely used to changing artists in mid storyline, but in something like block mania, it almost feels like. It helps. It helps weirdly give this sprawling sense of place, you know. Like there's yes. times where it just sort of feels like they'll switch to a different part of the city, and it's like because it's being drawn by Ron Smith all of a sudden. Just as they switch over to the northern sectors of Mega City One, it kind of feels like, oh yeah, well that's you know that's the north, you know. Like, yeah, exactly. That's that's what that looks like. Yeah, and so it's it's the the multi artist approach, even in Block Mania, I feel really works to its advantage because it gives a strangely uh, a it it gives this larger feel to the whole storyline somehow. That that of course 
is again that wonderful thing of it it's like this magic trick of just when you think that that the block mania story is as big as you can go with a dread story in scope like it's just the prelude to where they're really going which is yeah. stunning stunning it, stuff it really is it really is mm-hmm. um i want to jeff we were talking about before about like how are we going to do this yes i kind of want to close off the first half of the book now and get to block mania and apocalypse war as stories okay so in doing so is there anything else you want to say about that about the first half before we move on no i i don't i don't think so i mean again like you said there. They're very, the thing that's weird is they're very, the first half is separate from the second half in a way, but they're also sort of ridiculously organic. Also, there's part of me that, that, that I think Block Mania, it's worth pointing out, is a really good transition between the two phases, is a perfect bridge, if for no other reason than Block Mania, which is a nine-part story, ends up using a slew of artists and then you end up moving into the apocalypse war, which is only one artist the entire way through. So mm-hmm. I I really feel like in a way there's also that sort of shifting of the goalposts that, you know, you have this nine part story that's got McMahon and Smith and Steve Dillon and the last work of Brian Boland and then you get to the Apocalypse War and part of how that helps make that second half feel like such a sustained volley. You know what I mean? Like the mm-hmm. the artist switches in the first half of the book as it does with Dread up to this point. Like even though I've read enough of it that it feels mostly invisible and flawless – has a it has some very oh, it, ha- it has effects. an impact yeah exactly and by taking that away when you move into the apocalypse war create it has a i think some pretty profound effects in that point so yeah it, it's uh the first half of the book is like i said i mean it's wagner and grant are on fire and you have yeah some honestly just amazing artwork right all the way through yep um, they are astonishingly good stories. They build, like I was saying, the world in a way that the world building in Dread has already been amazing. Yes, and yet this is more so. Yes, this is this is it's it becomes a place where you can believe it. Uh, you can believe in it becomes somewhere that that seems three dimensional in a way that fiction worlds often don't. Because mm-hmm. as we were saying. The institutions are flawed in believable ways, mm-hmm. and the people are flawed in believable ways. Right. And and there is uh, an ambiguity that honestly I think can only really be achieved in something like Dread, in that it's a continuing strip. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, it doesn't have to come to a conclusion. Stories can come to a conclusion, but as Wagner Grant have already revealed, you can also just pick them up a year later. Mm-hmm. And so there there is something in that that the format allows for this ambiguity. But that ambiguity feels true to life. And so the first half of the book is this amazing build of Meg City One as this venue of dread as as much as anything, the myth, which really plays into what happens in the second half of the book. Mm. But also the 
flaws of the judicial system mm-hmm. and the limits of the judicial system and very much arguing against the theory as presented in earlier episodes that basically the judges are on top of their shit. Right. They're clearly not. Right. They're clearly outclassed on many occasions and surviving because in many cases the quote-unquote bad guys are inept or will take each other down. Yes, right. So it sets up this this framework where everything just feels a bit more slapdash, a bit more unstable, mm-hmm. which when you then head into a story in which it looks like society is breaking down, makes everything feel much, much larger. Well, and, and I think I would also maintain that to me part of the uh... – my, you know, my little thing is, is that the other character in Judge Dredd up to this point has been Mega City One. And the first half of volume five turns Mega City One into, I guess, a more realistic character or a more, a more recognizable character in that it looks more like our urban environment in a way that we can understand it, not in the simple satirical you know, caricature way, but in ways that are like, oh, there's there's flaws and fuck ups built into the system that people are exploiting in a way that feels like modern society. And so therefore, in the second half of the book, when the second half of the character, the second character of Judge Dredd essentially gets dragged to hell and back, to me, it's a lot more horrifying then I think it yeah, probably and, and would to have. all intents and purposes, dies. Yes, exactly. Like there are specific scenes in Apocalypse War, yeah. where well, we'll get there, but there are specific scenes where it honestly seems like the strip is ending. Yep, it honestly feels in many ways like Judge Dredd is over. Yep, midway through Apocalypse War, Absolutely. which is again amazingly bold, but only made possible because the first half of this book undermines the series enough. Yes. That it that that feels possible. Yeah, that yeah. that feels like it could happen. Yeah, that's actually yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, again, talking about the two, the book is two halves, maybe unfair, but everything comes before Block Mania is 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 really impressive. It's a feat in and of itself. Yes, and yet still lesser than what follows. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a shame that we're so uh, jaundiced about using the the whole like oh you know we're at a phrase place in our culture where people can talk about like frozen yogurt taking it to the next level you know but this volume for me really made me realize what it feels like when something that is good becomes like shockingly great uh as i really feel that block mania and apocalypse war does you know and what's what's funny is i feel that we've already talked about dread leveling up mm-hmm. we have you know, like i remember i remember the third volume we were both like holy shit like i didn't think you could do this yes you know and then it does this and you're like this isn't like can you imagine reading this as it was coming out I, I I honestly can't. And I again, I understand why it makes such an impression. I mean, even the stuff, I mean, that's what stuns me is the, you mentioned Gaze into the Fist of Dread. Like I, for the, what was coming out in the American reprints and, and seeing how Judge Death returns, like 
Death and Anderson and Boland are are like these major markers, I guess, for dread. And to see them in in the context in this volume, where it's like, it's again the scope is just screwed up. Like I'm like, wow, that thing that is so amazingly such a huge chunk of the dread dread mythos is somehow still only like the third best thing in this volume is nuts is absolutely nuts to me like it's just a level of achievement and and yeah so let's actually do block mini and apocalypse or yes okay I want to really quickly, very quickly do the plot synopsis so that people who aren't reading these books will understand why we're like, these are big deals. Yes. Blockmania is a nine-part story in which a conflict arises between six blocks, blocks being the, you know, oversized city in a building habitation units uh, in Mega City 1. Mm-hmm. What starts as a six-way fight soon spreads throughout the entirety of Mega City 1 as everyone, including judges, starts becoming astonishingly territorial Mm -hmm. uh, and and fighting for the honor of where they live. Mm -hmm. It seems to be, as we were saying at first, like something natural, for want of a better way of putting it. It very quickly becomes obvious that it is not natural. And by the end of the story, you discover that it is part of a plot. It is a chemical agent that has been introduced to the water by the Soviets from East Meg 1. Yes. Who, for people who remember last episode, basically pledged that one day they would attack Mega City 1. Yes. They find this out because Dread captures Orlok, the, the agent who is behind this, and he basically says, you're too late. We have already launched our attack. The attack is the Apocalypse War, and the Apocalypse War is exactly what it sounds like. Mega City One is nuked multiple times. In mm-hmm. response, they nuke East Meg One. Mm-hmm. It escalates significantly mm-hmm. uh, to the point where they say 150 million people in Mega City One have died, and that is midway through the story. That's not even at the end. Yes, uh, because you see that parts of the city are radiated, parts of the city uh, are inhabitable. Um, there is a ground invasion of Mega City One by by the East Meg judges midway through the story and things get worse and get worse to the point where for all intents and purposes mega city one is lost yes which leads to lead a team of i mean it's only about six judges it ends up being nine it's it's him and eight others they go to east meg one to to end the war and they do but the end of the story – sorry, they don't go to East Meg 1. I'm telling a lie because they go to to Russia. Yes. But they don't go to East Meg 1 because while Dredd's in Russia, he uses the Sov judge's own nuclear weapons to destroy East Meg 1. That's right. Uh, and it points out billions of people die as a result of this action. Right. Billions of people die. Um, and that actually does not end the war. Mm-hmm. Because the person who is in charge of the the sub judges has already in this story rebelled against his own leadership and killed them, mm-hmm. and then loses sight of anything approaching rationality, mm-hmm. and declares that he is going to keep the war going, and has to be betrayed by his own people in order for the war to end. It is 
in terms of escalation, it is really genuinely uh, unthinkable. Yes. You know, it's something that is essentially a cop procedural, albeit a, you know, a sci-fi cop procedural, ends with, you know, billions of people dying. That's right. And, and yet it all feels organic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and it shouldn't, but it does. Yeah, it's it's a it's such a it's such a stunner. Uh, one thing that that helps is the way that Blockmania begins. Like as I as I mentioned, it starts escalating. What seems like the first part becoming a six block war, which seems crazy enough. You know, something that just seems like something that's never happened before, and then. All of a sudden, there's block wars by the end of part two that are starting to break out everywhere. And by part three, you're just seeing them go. And part three is actually the first point where with the judges more or less wanting to go back and essentially fight for their own blocks. And Dread being like, oh, there's there's something that's not right here. One of the things that I think is wonderful is as these things all scale up, as you were talking about, Graham, the judges are always one step behind through all of block mania and what's profoundly great and terrifying about the apocalypse war is how much they are a step behind that the Soves have planned this all out and even when there's situations where they're exchanging nuclear weapons and you're seeing huge chunks of mega city one blow up but then they retaliate and the soviets are talking about their deaths and then someone goes oh but this is all part of our plan like the fact that that the the mega apocalyptic bombs get launched at the TADs, the Total Annihilation Devices, get launched in part five of the Apocalypse War, and it goes on for another 20 points, really goes on to show you essentially how much Wagner and Grant are in control of the narrative in terms of faking you out. Like, Mm -hmm. just when you think the story can't get any bigger or bleaker, they literally up the scale like with the very next part in a way that's that's sort of breathtaking you know and also very disorienting for the reader yes you know it literally both block mania but it's and apocalypse war but especially apocalypse war right remove your idea of what is to come mm-hmm because you think you know, and then they go somewhere that honestly is bigger at almost every occasion yes. You know, like at the start of the Apocalypse War, you think that the retaliation for the judges, for for the, the sub judges nuking Mega City One, is that they're going to nuke the East Meg One, mm-hmm. and they try that in Part Five, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're left with, well, where does the story go? Right, right. You know, yeah. It just it, it's it's really impressive. Yeah, it really is. I should mention that one of the things that also works about Blockmania again is this idea of it's uh, there's all these little fake outs 
we have seen, we, in fact, it, it, you know, as you mentioned, Graham, we've seen a story where essentially the, the Soves do a bit of nefarious underhand and, you know, end up nu- nuking Robert Oppenheimer uh, block. And, and, and consequently, their plans are kind of thwarted and they're like, oh, but we will get you someday. So at the point where Block Mania becomes, you realize that that Orlock is clearly so sophisticated. He's got to be an agent, and it becomes it becomes more and more apparent that he is a Sove agent who is all but bringing down the city by Block Mania. And you get to the end where Dread manages to catch him thwart him and beat him you're kind of like oh okay this is now gonna you've seen this story in a way you're like i fully expected that it was going to be like oh the soves are going to be like oh curse it like we're going to twirl our mustaches yeah and and the smile that orlock gives at the end of block mania and this is like the war to end all wars is even now beginning. And the last page is him laughing with like little, you know, that classic comic booky skull in his eyes, superimposed over dozens of nuclear warheads already in the air is such a, it, again, it's like, oh, you think you know where this is going. And in part because it's where it's always gone. And now yeah, Grant yeah. and Wagner... Wagner mm-hmm. And Wagner Grant know that. Yes. The second last page of Blockmania is Dread succumbing to Blockmania finally. Yes. right, And that feels like the payoff to the story. Exactly. He's punched the bad guy. He's captured him. They're mm-hmm. going to the, to the Hall of Justice. Yes. And then he succumbs. And you're like, that's the payoff to the story. Yeah, he finally gets it, but then he gets tranquilized. Yeah, and so to have the epilogue being, this was nothing. Yeah, like we have already killed off millions of people, and this is nothing. And also for that matter, we've not cured Block Mania, which yes. comes up repeatedly in Apocalypse War. Yes, the Block Mania is still going on. Block Mania gets cured by the soft judges. Yes, because they're like, oh, we've just got to stop it. Like it's too much hassle. We'll give them the antidote. Yes. Like is 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 amazing, but you're right. The last page of of Blogmania, I mean, is the ultimate zag instead of zig. Yes, you think the story's over, and then they're like, "This was literally nothing compared with what's coming." Right. No, and honestly, the start of the first episode, the next episode, this first episode of Apocalypse War, mm-hmm. which is the two page spreads that is essentially the movie poster for Apocalypse War, yes. is such a easy choice. Yeah, because it really is like, okay, this is where shit gets real. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's it's that idea of like, and, and I think that's also what's great. Like you said, it's a movie poster. It's a double page spread. When it appeared in 2000 AD, it was the color, you know, gatefold. So it's in color. And it's this whole like, okay, now is a big epic that you are not like, you're not even going to be prepared for. And it is so rare to get something like that to be able to live up to the hype. And one of the things that's so awesome with Apocalypse War is how they transcend their own hype. And you're just like, Jesus. Like, yeah, exactly. the, fuck. Yeah. 
really fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, you know, I had been reading through this volume and feeling like I was behind. And there was a night earlier in this week I got to Block Mania, and I essentially just ended up finishing the volume all in one night because I could not put it down. Yes. And the other thing that I thought was amazing is when volume five of the case files started, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be um, emotionally hardy enough to make it through the book. Like it was so grim and I was in such a bleak place about the current state of affairs in everywhere <laughs> yeah in the world literally that i was like i don't know if i can really handle this and apocalypse war just goes like you said it's so dark but there were also parts where it was so bleak i started laughing like some yeah. of the jokes that suddenly are just some of them of which are just groaningly um cheap are genuinely funny because it's right in the middle of this pitch blackness and you're willing to i think grab you, on you'll to take it yeah you'll take anything yeah, absolutely you really oh. will take the joke about the person who's rebuilding their home that has been destroyed by a nuclear bomb seeing another nuclear bomb come towards them and going not again <laughs> you're willing to take that oh you know yeah 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 no i mean there's there's shit where because of course the, the other thing that stuns me is this is a Judge Dredd mega prog, which means are we going to get Walter and Maria? We are. Oh yeah, a lot. And, we're gonna get a lot of Walter and Maria. And and there is shit there where I'm suddenly laughing in ways that I don't think I really had because there's because again, I think it's just like I will hold on to anything. Like just the opening two pages of uh, part six of the Apocalypse War, fucking hell, man! The 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 way that the Apocalypse War builds and builds and builds, like I I don't even know. Should I again? I'm like I don't think that. I mean, should we try to quickly recap it? I just feel like that would be. I mean, I'm I'm not sure that a recap more than I've already done would. Be of any use yes absolutely. because so much of of blog mania and apocalypse war both yeah. of them is in the reading yeah. is in the fact that you do just think well this can't get any bigger and then it does yep you know and sometimes the this sounds completely um counterintuitive but sometimes the bigger is smaller yes you know going from nuking parts of the city to the ground invasion Right. And the ground invasion featuring scenes where there are tanks that are literally just crushing people under the tracks. Yes. While those people are being irradiated. Yes. Or seeing people have to leave their homes because there's too much radiation and deciding I'd rather go to the cursed earth. And, you know, that is on one hand smaller than, you oh, know, okay. the city has been nuked. So – I, I actually do want to mention this because this to me somehow sums up part of the genius of uh, Grant and Wagner and their and and the dark humor is you have a big session that is 
the people from Mega City One leaving into the cursed earth, and like somebody's like looking back, a kid's looking back, and the father's like, "Don't look back, son." And you know, it's just kind of this big emotional moment. And they're like, yes, I can't believe that we're leaving. And you look at everyone else and they're like, oh, I can't believe that, that these people are leaving. And then what happens is the weather bot goes out of control. The weather satellite that's been controlling things is. And then so what ends up happening is, is that all of these people, an enormous windstorm breaks out. And people are being flung around like pieces of paper and they're being thrown back into the city. So they can't even leave. And I remember laughing at that and feeling so horrible. Yeah, that's like part 19. Thousands are swept up in the fury of the storm and unceremoniously deposited back in the city from whence they fled. And it's literally people screaming and... And and the next panel, the next page is two judges looking out the window, and one of them says, "Worst storm I've ever seen. It's raining citizens out there." I mean, that's... yeah, it's it's so again wonderfully bleak, yeah, but weirdly funny, yes, and that that goes all the way through. Yeah. The, like the block, you know, you talked before about the choices of blocks and block mania. Mm-hmm. They're fascinating to me, mm-hmm. like. Dan Tana, do you know who Dan Tana is? Yeah, the fictional character from like the Vegas TV show. Yeah, right? Yeah. You get him. That's the thing, you, you totally get what Wagner and Grant were watching on TV because they reference that. And also, uh, Max Normal lives in the Ricardo Montalban block. Yes. Which, of course, he's living there because that's the luxury apartment because of Fancy Island. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's great, like, weird things where you're like, I don't. And there's a part where. Um, there is a admittedly mangled, but a message to you, Rudy joke. Yes, so I love that. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get all this weird, like, oh, I get what they're listening and reading to yeah. because it's coming through in the comic. Yes. Um, but no, it, it, there's just, there is this weird sense of playfulness in this astonishingly apocalyptic story. Yes. You know, and, and it does, it just builds. And it builds in such a way where, the smaller things kill you. Yeah. For example, giant dying mm-hmm. is so understated. It really is. He it's just shot and just seems to be shot yeah. at the end of an episode. And then the next episode opens with Dread being like, I can't believe giant's dead. And that's it. There's nothing else. Yeah. I know we've had episodes about giant, like going from cadet to being a judge. Mm-hmm. We like, you know, you had giant, Saving Dread repeatedly in the day the law died. Yes. Giant just did the hot dog run with Dread. Like, Giant is the closest thing Dread has to a friend. Yeah. And Giant dies in two panels across two episodes, and there is not any sentiment attached to it at all. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. Um, I talked before about there's parts in in the Apocalypse War where it feels like they're undoing the series. Yes. I, I don't know if you noticed, but there are parts in where Dread gives up. Mm-hmm. Like the Hall of Justice is a flame at one point. Yeah. And Dread actually says, like, leave it. There's no justice anymore. Mm-hmm. And then the next episodes, when they're watching everyone leaving for the Cursed Earth, mm-hmm. Judge says to him, you know, well, look at them. They're, you know, they're really unruly. And he just goes, you start making arrests. Yes. Yeah. Like Dread gives up. And there's something about that mm-hmm. that is, again, so small. 
but so big. Yeah. That that is just shocking, but utterly earned. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. What they're doing is is amazing Mm -hmm. in these stories. Yeah, I think so. I I did want to mention as we were talking about the 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 huge sort of the the dark humor at one point dread and this is another part that's crazily shocking is of course there's the chief judge griffin who dread is like you know you've got to get away you are are basically you're our only hope you're our leader and you are the symbol of mega city one and he more or less puts him in space and uh, Griffin then basically ends up being caught by the Soves who end up brainwashing him and putting him on TV so that he can essentially start telling people like he's an ultimate propaganda tool. And Dredd's like, well, I got to go kill him. So Dredd breaks into uh, through the via the Hall of Heroes, dresses up as, a, you know, knocks out a Sov judge or kills him. I guess he kills him takes his things and then assassinates uh, Chief Judge Griffin on air. And it's one of those great moments. Like, just talk about amazing storytelling. The the page where he executes Judge Griffin on air and there's that control panel inside the control room where they're yelling. Each of them has balloons. Yes, they have balloons and it's different angles of him shooting it. Like, the sentence is death. Ah! the sentence is death ah there's like a six panel comic book page within the comic book page that i mean not only is that just stunning storytelling for mascara but uh weirdly enough before i got so excited and lost my point my point was is that the dread is going under the name of uh, uh the so judge gogol everyone's like you know gogol show us your papers and and gogol nikolai gogol is a Russian author who is absurd. Uh, one of his best-known stories, The Nose, is about a nobleman who turns into an enormous nose, you know. And he goes on to write one of the great books of absurdist literature, Dead Souls, which is entirely this satirical look at um, the essentially the Russian government and the, the voting system at the time. So it's... I, I had that moment of like, have Wagner and Grant read Gogol? Because it's some really deeply knowing name dropping. Like it's one of those things where it's like I, I went down and I'm like, God, I really I've got to go hunt up Dead Souls and read this because I do. If it's half as entertaining as of as the Apocalypse War, um, I've got to read it. You know, uh, it's just the the the. But apart from that, the level of I don't know how to describe it. We've talked about Eisner. We've talked about EC Comics. We've kind of talked about all the various different levels of mm, absurdity and sentimental, sentimental, sentimentality. You know, Wagner and Grant have somehow managed to boil it away here that in working with Escara's work that is simultaneously so expressive in its line work and its stip and its stippling, but so weirdly inexpressive in the way that he presents 
dread and even some of the judges, you know, it's, it's just, it's such a unique achievement. I, I really, the first time I finished the apocalypse war, Graham, I really was like, I had that moment of like, why the fuck isn't this being taught in schools? Like I really had this moment of like, this is absolutely as big as Watchmen. And I, I don't know upon rereading it, if I can actually still stick to that and, and back <laughs> that up. But but it's in in terms of its actual um, brute force as an entertainment object that you were reading, like it's it's stunning. It's yeah, really it, it really is. It really is. You mentioned Scara and this Dread has had. I mean, a murderous row of artists. Dread yes. has, has has like had an astounding number of artists. Astounding. Uh, talent of artists you know like we were just talking about man and boland is scary art in this is probably the best the series has been for me yeah he he really there's it's so evocative of of a it's so much of a place and and the people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that in a way that the other artists none of them have ever quite managed in the same way mm-hmm. there's something about it that he just gets entirely right mm-hmm. um and very complete like mm-hmm. it's, it's very very again real lived in uh a part of it is you know iscara is is uh, uh an acquired taste i think as an artist right you know i i don't think you could point to iscara and be like you know he, he is for everyone or for that matter that uh he is someone who does realism yeah uh to that degree like he reminds me of kirby Mm. That he is, he is very much his own beast. Mm-hmm. But when you acquire that taste, you continually find new nuance in his work. Right. You yeah. know, there are parts in here where he does a flashback scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. He removes all solid blacks. Yes. And that is amazingly effective. Yes. I mean, genuinely, like, you stop reading because it is so effective that, yeah. that, that, that he does with that simple simple idea of just i'm going to remove all solid blacks and just sketchily line in the blacks instead mm-hmm. you understand instinctively that this is a flashback exactly you exactly. know like stuff like that is just is incredible work yeah. his his i mean his dread is is great Mm-hmm. His dread is so so wonderful, and I say that even though at one point there is a shot of dread that honestly it looks like dread has gained like a hundred pounds between the two panels. Um, but you know, all of the his his designs of the soft judges mm-hmm. are are spot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he manages to do the grand scale and the small scale in such a way that they get the appropriate weight for the story. Right, like Iscara is genuinely. Again, an artist that should be studied. An oh, artist completely. much, much more well-known in the U.S. than he is. Right. Well, I, I think because it's this, um, you know, Escara is, is, a, is weird uh, as people who, you know, more, as I should say, more listeners should know this. I, I'm willing to bet better than I do. Like, Escara does, did the original designs for Judge Dredd, then basically gets so upset that 
that he, you know, that they launch the book without him being able to draw the the initial appearance. The first appearance isn't drawn by him. That he basically gets pissed off and and tells them to fuck off. So, one of the things that's amazing about the Apocalypse War is we're on year five, and you get the two people most responsible for creating dread, Wagner and Escara. And they finally come together here. And and Escara, who was big in, uh, you know, being able to draw battle and had been, was considered a very big catch when, um, is it IPC that's, that was published in yeah, 2000 yeah. AD and captured him from Thompson, I think. Um, you know, it was considered quite the coup. And then they weren't able to keep him for 2000 AD. So he comes in, he starts drawing the apocalypse war and more or less he agrees to draw it, but only if he's allowed to draw every part of the storyline. And I don't know if they had said like, this is going to be a 29 week storyline, but the fact that he draws the longest storyline uninterrupted to this point, like I have no idea what's in the future, but on a weekly basis is stunning. Like I sort of feel like the comparisons to Kirby make a lot of sense to me because he is Ascara has all the tools in the tool. He is he is a master of all of his storytelling. By the time that he steps in here, like like you said, the 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 amount of superlative storytelling that you're getting while he's working under a crazy deadline blows my mind. Also, one of the things that I think is hilarious is you look at Dread and because it's really his first time, you know, apparently drawing the character in a long time and because he's not really moving in the Bolin thing, he goes with a totally different facial shape than... Mm -hmm the way everyone's moving. But one of the things that I love that is amazing to me is really early on, he does a profile shot of dread and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's dread. Like Escara somehow can draw dread in profile in a way that is utterly definitive to the character. And also kind of kind of made me think like, I don't really know if anyone could quite figure out how to draw Dread in profile before that. You know what I mean? Like his face didn't quite make sense that way, but it yeah. makes such perfect sense here. And and yes. and, and is uh, immediately a um like an a, a strangely understated iconic take on Dread. And that's one of the things that I think is really weird about Iskara is you look at Boland and Boland shit is just so amazing. And you're like, it, it, it captivates you. And you're like, yeah, that is dread. What's amazing about Iskara is he captures it. He defines the character in this weirdly subtle way, you know, like I said, like you just don't see like how often do you see a character be, you know, having their iconic look happen more or less in profile that way, you know? And yeah. it's just yeah. amazing. I do want to mention also since, you know, Escara is also a great pick because he's done so many war comics and I mentioned this very briefly, but I do want to mention it again. 
one of the things that's amazing about the Apocalypse War is how much it is it not only is it future war, but Oh it, no, it's a war comic. It's a war comic. Like, yes. I, and that's when you were talking about Ennis before, that's what I want to come back to. Yes. This feels very much like a British war comic. Very much. Especially so. when you get to the Guerrilla War and then you get to the mission of Dredd and his team yes. back to the Soviets. Yep. It feels very much like it's informed by Wagner's experience working for Warlord and those other titles. Yeah. yeah. You know, it 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 is not it ceases to be judge Dredd at mm-hmm. some point mm-hmm. you know and it, it becomes i mean you talked about the weather uh, controller going haywire the weather controller goes haywire because dread basically orders it sabotaged to help with his guerrilla campaign because if yes. the subs don't know what's going to happen with the weather then that's to his advantage because he yes. knows the terrain even if he doesn't know what's going to happen that's right and it, he he does. He becomes a guerrilla fighter, yeah. which we've seen before. Yep. You know, like that happened in The Day the Law Died. Mm-hmm. But here it is just ramped up again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's this very, very, very dramatic and, again, should be over the top, but doesn't feel over the top. Yeah. Moment of, like, everything is on the line. Yes. No. Every- Everything is up for grabs in this in this story because Mega City One is just genuinely getting decimated yes. in the truest sense of that term. Yeah. And Dread is willing to let everything burn yes. in order to win, and that's actually something I love about this, which is the Apocalypse War. In many ways, is a story about how Dread has no sense of perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Dread is willing to destroy the world so that he doesn't lose. And you know this because he orders 25 of the TADs mm-hmm. uh, to East Meg 1, and they use a teleporter to put it into a different dimension. And in a different dimension, it literally destroys the Earth. Yes, exactly. So Dredd is willing to destroy the Earth so that he doesn't lose. Oh, yeah. No. You know, you see when you see the mission to to mm-hmm. the the soft judges yeah he surrenders afterwards and he's okay with dying mm-hmm. because he basically destroyed east meg one and he's fine with whatever happens after that that's right he's no. absolutely fine with it yeah because he just doesn't want to lose and i love that it's so um you know if we've seen up until now the the judges don't really have their shit together mm-hmm. and you know system is flawed Apocalypse War on many levels is Dredd is this fucked up broken person. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. So this gets to me about the next to last panel of the Apocalypse War. And it it and it's it's the one that makes me crap myself. And spoilers, sorry for everyone if you wanna skip over this part if you want to read it, but it's to me it's like so this you're at the end of this war. Mega City One has been, you know, practically wiped from the planet. East Meg One is literally destroyed. It's billions of people that Dread has decided to blow up despite someone begging him not to. And like you said, that's kind of your moment to for you, Graham, of like, this is Dread essentially make doing a thing that is unthinkable. And yet, and yet doing it. And to me, the thing is, is the penultimate panel is in 
the penultimate panel of this story is in Mega City One, the momentous task of rebuilding begins. And someone, I think it's probably Hershey, says, it, "No, it's it's Magruder." So oh, it's Magruder. Jumping. Thank you. Yeah, it's like a scene out of Hell, Dread. I wonder, could this be the catastrophe that Judge Faye predicted for the city? And Dread says, "Either that, or there's worse to come." Now, admittedly, because it's a continuing comic, there is a way in which you're like. Yeah, you know, that sort of leaves the door open for like... Sure, yes, you, yeah, you, you can't be like, no, this is the worst it's going to get. Yeah. That's, that's literally not the way that adventure fiction works. Exactly. But in the unstated ambiguity of it, you are like, fuck, if this is what Judge Faye saw, this is all Judge Dredd's fault because if he hadn't left decided that the judge child was evil and left him you know he ignores judge Faye's prophecy and is like that kid is evil will only come to bad ends if we end up taking him dread makes a thing based on his gut his judgment as a result of that judge child who is a precog a powerful precog would have seen everything that the Soves were setting up in advance and could have headed it off. You know, I had that moment of there's so much in this story where at every point the, the Soves have been, have been planning this out. And if they just knew like they're because the city is because they are five steps behind, like the only reason why they don't lose is as dread is, the reed that will not bow in the wind. Yeah, yeah. But by the same token, if he had, if he had brought back Judge Child, Judge Child would have would warned have them, and and it would not have happened. All these people, including an entire parallel Earth, would not have died. It's all on Dread's head, in a way that is. Um, implicit and implied but unstated and well also that he refuses to acknowledge oh yeah no i mean he's just like like was this the catastrophe the judge Faye predicted and he's like hmm, maybe there's going to be worse it's amazing yeah. like there's no self-reflection for him there's no self-reflection for him when he decides to destroy smeg one right no no absolutely not there's there's and, and this is one of those points where I feel that Dread is a kind of in that way, like, you know, when he talks about the fact that he's on Rowdy, he's going to, after he's he finally succumbs to Block Mania and he's like, Rowdy Yates Block, you know, Rowdy Yates is the character that Clint Eastwood portrayed in uh, Big Valley, right? So it's kind of a, oh yeah, we're underlining this, this Eastwood thing. Uh, but... That little Americanism aside that they keep talking about, I feel that that the dreads sort of, you know, take it on the chin kind of and don't complain is such a, you know, is such the, the British thing. Like, I mean, it, British war comics are fascinating to me in, in a way that the Brits are deeply in love with world war ii which is fascinating because they were destroyed like 
the the destruction of London during the Blitz is such a is is in its own way such a um, kernel at the core of the Apocalypse War. Like Mega City One is is that you know, but in a modern way and in a completely modern context. And the concept of the, you know, you only mustn't grumble, keep the stiff upper lip, like Dread is the embodiment of the stiff upper lip. He does not have the sentimentality, I guess. I mean, it's not a sentimentality. It's the Dread's, Dread, every, Dread is is the the hard-boiled egg of the British soft-boiled egg. You know what I mean? Like, he is... Every... The, his belief in civility... The, the English belief in civility becomes Dred's belief in the law. And his unwillingness to surrender is, you know, at the core of every World War II story, right up to, you know, the fucking Chumba Wumba song. You know what I mean? Like it's just a, it's just an, a part, at least as I understand it, of a, a you know a specific piece of of the British self definition, or at least the I should say the English self definition, because I don't know that it's shared across the rest of the UK. But and and perhaps in its way, as you know, as as two Scots uh, would say. Like it's it's a it there's more than a bit of evil to it. There's more than a bit of what it does not pay attention to, what it does not allow itself to look at is an entire um participation, I suppose, in the things that cause its problems and its downfall. Yeah, there, there's something about the Apocalypse War that is at once the zenith of the Dread Strip to, mm-hmm. to date, mm-hmm. and an incredibly valid critique of Dread as a character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's I I we, it's boring for the number of times that we're like, you know, this is Wagner and Grant at the height of their powers, right? And yet. There is something so wonderful about the fact that they're like, this is the best the strip is. And by the way, the character is a shit. Yes. Well, because I, I, and I do think what is amazing to me is how frequently in comics creators tip their hand. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm, I'm certainly for myself in terms of what I like as a comic and even what, you know, I've tried my hand at as a creator, I always find myself being a little bit of the, oh, and I'm going to tell you either how to feel about it or how I feel about it. But because that's not there, like the tightrope act continues, like it just continues to to walk a line that seems that started off as not especially broad in, in, you know, the first place, like it just gets tighter and tighter at this line between dreads, the hero dreads, the shit dread is, you know, is, is ultimately everything that's right. And everything that's wrong with, you know, his culture, his society, our culture, our society, like at 
at every stage, it's it continues to take on more shading. And I think literally just because the, in part because the creators have the discretion not to go like, oh, and yeah, and he's bad. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it is, yeah. it is a way like that ending, just the fact that it is literally one panel and the way that they play it as, as, you know, was, was this the big thing? And exactly. It's... Like just, just reminding you, like, yeah, Dredd might have been able to stop this. Yes. Like this might not have happened if Dread had compromised his principles, you know, several years back, you know, and instead it doesn't, it's just, it's said in a way that makes it look like they, Wagner and Grant are talking about the, you know, how are we ever going to top this one? True believers, you know, but in fact, it, it could be saying something quite, quite different about what that character, who that character is. And, and, and given what else has happened in the story, like that reading is is especially valid. Yes, absolutely. Like so much of the of so much of the Apocalypse War is a story about Dread going too far. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, about Dread, Dread, you know, Dread being Dread, which in many ways this story plays up as like uh, maybe not admirable, but necessary. Mm-hmm. But it is like there is also an implicit rebuke of Dread throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know so, so to end like that, I think is it, I think it's actually a very valid reading to say that, no, Wine and Rant are actually saying, yeah, if he'd only fucking brought uh, Owen Chrysler back. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Like, none of this shit. Everything that he fought. There's, there's that joke, real early episode of The Simpsons, where at the end, uh, um, you know, Homer Simpson says, like, here's the beer, the solution to and cause of all of man's problems, you know, and that's that's kind of fucking dread, you know, at the same time, like they would have, per- you know, they they probably would have perished by block from block mania if it hadn't been from for dread, like, you know even before the missiles start hitting like dread like well except except they wouldn't because like again owen would have seen it right no exactly exactly it's it's that thing of like he saves them but yeah no again it's just it it's pretty miraculous it's it's a stunner of a volume graham i have to say so so once again one last thing about wagner grant being at the top of their powers please there are two chapters of the apocalypse war where dread essentially doesn't appear oh i actually wanted to talk about that there's more there's several chapters in fact one of the things that's amazing is how they will phase dread out and then phase him back like the first the first chapter of the story dread appears on one page that's right that's right and it and it happens several times throughout you'll get points where he will just show up and maybe change exchange some exposition on a page and the other five sto- pages are what's happening. Like, and part of yeah. that is setting the stage for, um, dreads opposite number, the completely evil shit, uh, mad dog or, or, or Marshall Kazan. Yeah. Kazan. Yeah. Mad dog Kazan and his torturing of his second in command, Isaac, that again, in a wonderful form of economy, it becomes seems like it is 
oh, this is what a shitty guy, um, you know, the war marshal is, is, is that he keeps punishing his second in command for every failure to the point where he's literally making the guy commit Russian roulette every day. And you're like, oh, yeah, OK, so this establishes he's he's a shit in very much a way that that Garth Ennis goes on to lift kind of wholesale. But the way that that pays off with Isaac and the end of the story is phenomenal. But Dread, Dread, one of the things, the two things that killed me about the Apocalypse War is how they will fade back. They will pull away from Dread and you'll just see shit. You'll, you'll introduce two judges in the ruins of Mega City One trying to save someone and then they're like ground down by tanks and you're like, holy fucking shit. And then Dread will sort of pop up at the end and then he'll move into the forefront. So the the way the story accelerates and decelerates by using Dread as a form of that, you know. Dread Dread is an anchor. Yeah. For for the rest of the story, which is you know, the series is called Judge Dread, but the Apocalypse War is not a Judge Dread story per se. Mm-hmm. And it keeps reminding you of that. Which I which I really like. The other thing is in the first episode you get the um the oh what's the Russian commander called? Nalkazan. Kazan's mm-hmm. boss who gets killed later. Oh yes. The, the oh Dickopat. Supreme Judge Joseph Bulgarin. Yes. And Dread both essentially say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. They both essentially say, like, who cares about the citizens? Yes. Like this this isn't about the citizens. Yeah. Uh apart, which is again you cannot read the Apocalypse War without seeing the implicit critique of Dread. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally right there in the first bit on the first chapter. Yeah, the first chapter. To, to mm-hmm. raise a, a, that there is a, a dread is dread has no sense of perspective. Mm-hmm. Dread dread is not who people may think he is. Like the 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 argument that dread is not the hero is right there in the first chapter. Yes, and then he goes on to commit literal genocide, admittedly accidentally, mm-hmm. by by blowing up the other planet. But at the same time, if they hadn't done that, he would have blown up his planet. So yes, dread is intentionally like almost destroying a planet and then destroys all of East Meg one kills billions of people yep. without a second thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, the opposite of without a second thought, he is begged to, for, for mercy and refuses. Yes. You know, like the, the, the criticism of dread could not be more clear mm-hmm. in apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's absolutely there's so much there's so much to love about the apocalypse war. It is astounding. Again, returning to it, all the war tropes like you want a dude throwing himself on a grenade. Sure. You want the like we've got to blow up the bridge to cut off the supply line thing. It's there. But it's all done at this this crazy ass scale. Jesus, God, man, what a thing. I got to tell you, it, it, it's it's really. I mean, it's really genuinely impressive. One last thing, just because I noted it, and it, it's it's another Ascara thing. Mm-hmm. I I can't say enough good things about Ascara's art. Yeah, the there's a part where um, Mega City One's getting flooded. Yes. Did you notice that he's literally doing the great wave? Of yes, mm-hmm. Kanagawa. Mm-hmm. Like he literally just puts that in the page. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah, I'll have to put that in the show notes. But it's just. Yeah, I, I like. I, I it's another moment where I was reading and I was like, "Wait, mm-hmm. wait, is he? 
Yeah. Because that's ballsy as shit. Is he? He really is. Yeah, he really yeah. is. Yeah, it's it's a stunner. And again, the beginning of the end, that's fucking part three. And that chapter horrified the shit out of me. And then it just keeps, it just keeps going. Oof. Ah, uh, oof. So very, very quickly, I said this at the start of the episode, um, I'm watching HBO's Chernobyl, mm, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've seen as well, right? No, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um everything everyone is saying about it is true it's it's really good yeah it is also i mean horrifyingly bleak mm-hmm. as it should be like you know what happened was was horrible and and, and it is just like relentlessly bleak mm-hmm. but r- watching that and reading this at more or less the same time mm-hmm. is a really weird thing mm-hmm. because a you know, both take place or, or revolve around um, Russia and Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, the the idea of, like, you know, staying true to the party system. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, for all the, the Apocalypse War, essentially, like, never really gets close to the reality of all these nuclear explosions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, watching Chernobyl, <laughs> like, I couldn't get that out of my head. Oh, sure. God. The idea that, like, you know, there are 10 nukes going off of Mega City 1 at once. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, just, there yeah. is a great sequence uh, where, as, as you know, like, there's a bunch of citizens that are kind of making their way through the snow. And they're sort of complaining about their aches and pains. And they're set, as, set upon by a, a series of... Um, east of like tank that the self-automated tank machines and uh a bunch of a bunch of uh judges a handful of judges in these like big heavy um you know basically radiation protection suits go and blow these things up and then uh, essentially say to the citizens like hey you guys you're dead you know it it it's sort of like Okay, you citizens are way offline, and someone's like, "I recognize that voice. It's Strad himself." Judges, we've been saved by judges, and he's like, "You misunderstand me, citizen. No one can save you now. Haven't you wondered why the snow isn't lying? You've stumbled into a radiation zone. Our rad suits protect us. For you, it's too late." And they're like, "No wonder we feel sick. We're dying. You know, skin's starting to blister, and an hour will be gone." Like. Again, just that kind of level of bleakness of the situation where you've got, you know, refugees who are being attacked, who are saved by the judges, but basically saved to be executed at the judge's hands so they don't have to die painfully from radiation. Yeah, and also Dredd decides to do that and you get that maybe a couple of pages after Kazan's like, no, we should keep them alive because otherwise who are we going to rule over? Right. You know, so you have the quote-unquote hero of the strip being like, no, he even refuses them food. Yes. He's like, no, we're going to need the food. Like, yeah. don't feed them. Yep. We're going to need the food. And it really is this moment of like, oh, he's more cruel than the villain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or or almost as cruel because that, you know, there's that thing of dreads like the, we've got to save the food for the fighters. Whereas Kazan at one point sends a bunch of guys to Siberia, Siberia with winter clothing. And then is like, no, 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 strike that. And Isaacs is like, oh, you've taken mercy on him. He's like, no, 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 no. They're going without the winter clothing. 
you know. So his yeah. relentless cruelty. There's the the just the little line is is that dread is always cruel for a purpose that is not you know is not inherent not, not cruelty for this, in itself. Not for not for cruelty's sake. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But separate and apart from the idea that all of this is happening because it's his fucking fault is just chilling. Just oh. Graham McMillan, it, 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 this was an astonishing volume to read. And you know, the funny thing that about it is it's also not a volume to, to, to jump ahead of where you might go with this. This is not, a, weirdly enough, this is not a volume that I would say like, oh yeah, this should be your first volume of Judge Dredd. Because as I talked about a little bit, part of what makes this so strong is the way that Grant and Wagner break out continuity when you least expect it. And this story, Judge Death story, Giant's death and block mania, and even um, the death of some of my beloved Charlton Heston block. Um, All of that is payoffs to things that have already been set up. I think if someone sat down and read this, they'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. This is some good stuff. But it's weird. And maybe this is how, like, or why Apocalypse War has never become the equivalent of something like Watchmen. Because it is it is a cumulative punch that works on on multiple levels if you know them. And if you don't, it's almost invisible. And it's uh it's fascinating and it also makes me wonder if that's part of the reason why Wagner and Grant are so seen as such an achievement for people who grew up reading this material and so hard for Americans perhaps to understand or to grok the drock because it's so um it's 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 so um Cumulative is, I guess, the word that I'm thinking of. So, see, you say that, you say that, but part of me thinks that at least the first half of this volume would be a great mm-hmm. first volume. What stops me from saying, "Oh, this should be the first volume," is honestly that I think there's a lot about the Apocalypse War that makes me think, "Well, you can't really follow that if this is your first take." Yeah. Like it, it sets an expectation that honestly nothing else can match. Right. Mm. You know, I, I think it weirdly has to be built up to. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I, I can honestly yes. think of one other mega epic that matches the Apocalypse War. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, it's another Wagner and Iscara one because the others are. And the Apocalypse War isn't my favorite of the mega epics, mm-hmm. but it's the one I think is most complete. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that anyone who, like, if they read this for the first one, they're like, oh, so every book ends up with, like, a massive story, right? And you'd be like, no, no, it doesn't, no. Right, right. Yeah, no, I don't know. I still, part of me is, yeah, I, I still almost think that, that um, in a way, if you don't read The Day the Law Died, there is a, like, I feel like the Apocalypse War is even more dizzying. Because one of the things I liked about, uh, the day the law died is how much um, there's fake outs in the story there where it's almost like, Oh, now it's over except it's really not. And now it gets bigger, you know? And, 
But I, I, I don't know. For myself, I feel like you've got to at least read the Judge Child saga to get a little bit of the, if nothing else, that next to last panel just ends up like all but making you stomach sick with the implications, you know? So mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a mighty fine thing. Yeah, it's, it's a peak. I mean, it really, yeah. really genuinely is like a, a, a peak of of the comic. And maybe one that is arguably unmatched. Mm -hmm. Definitely one that I would, I would say is not matched for, for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's, yeah, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is. It's stunning. So, yeah. What a, what a, what a, what a, what a wonderful time. Uh, yeah. Hey, everyone. If you're not reading along, yes. Also, uh, you want you want like really dark, funny, gripping, terrifying science fiction. Yeah, this is the book reads. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's astounding. It is so good that I literally forgot to mention the fact that um, this is technically our 400th episode. Graham of all yeah, of our yeah. happy birthday us yes indeed indeed if you if you combine all of our weight what's and the Baxter billions and the drocks and all the extras apparently uh, pretty much nail it right here on 400 and it's this was quite the quite the episode to to celebrate with because holy smokes it really was just such a impressive achievement I'm still kind of clearly knocked on my ass about it Anyone from Rebellion listening, Jeff just said this was as good as Watchmen. Ignore the fact that he said on rereading, I'm not sure it holds up. Just use that <laughs> and sell the shit out of it. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. People. Yes, absolutely. I said, I'm going to say, yes. we are going to have show notes for this episode uh, up on waitwattpodcast.com. At some point on Monday, we'll we'll see where, when that is realistically because my work schedule has been nuts lately. Um, before you're before that happens, and while you're waiting for that, you can also check out our Tumblr, waywattpod.tumblr.com, or our Instagram, instagram.com forward slash waywattpod, or our Twitter account at waywattpodcast. Jeff Lester has a Twitter account, all of his own, <laughs> at lazybastid, at l a z y b a s t i d, and I have a Twitter account, all of my own as well, at Graham M, at G R A E M E M. Mm. And this drock, your the show you've just been listening to, the Judge Dread read through that is going to go all the way until we run out of case files. Although literally earlier on today, Jeff, I was like, should we be reading like the Judge Anderson books as well? <laughs> Like, should we be doing, like, the restricted case files, which is, like, the annual stories? Wow. We have to, at some point, make a decision about that. Right. Anyway, this drug exists because of uh, our Patreon supporters, which, because I mentioned the word Patreon, means that Jeff Lester is going to start talking right now. Yes, I am. Listeners, we, we owe so much to you. Uh, everyone who kind of listens to us and makes it a point to... to you know, keep tuning in to listen to Graham and I blab, do the comic book jibber jab thing is really wonderful. It manages to sort of keep us um, connected and invested and, uh, you know, the, the world of comic books and each other's lives. But uh, we also like a big debt of gratitude to those listeners who through Patreon throw us a little bit of extra dosh um, in 
as a way to thank us and support us. It's incredibly, incredibly appreciated. Probably for me, like ne more so than ever before, because just as the Baxter building was a stretch goal that um, we achieved uh, thanks to Patreon supporters, we followed that up with Drock, which really does mean sort of in that strange way that Dread, you know, uh, created and changed the fate of the the world without really understanding or acknowledging it there's a very good chance that i would not have read the judge dread case files volume five if not for this uh for for us doing drock so thank you i'm incredibly incredibly grateful uh here on the fourth 400th episode i i want to make a point to thank uh american ninth art studios for their support for us for a long time and uh, still give it up for Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, for her long running and strong support of this podcast. But really, honestly, we, we really are. We're really, really grateful to all of you, uh, me especially so, for being able to read this volume because of you guys. I owe, I owe you a solid Graham? That's, without breaking news, Jeff Lester owes everyone a solid. I'm going to say that we are back in two weeks with a Waybot. We are taking next week off, I think, Jeff? Yes. Am I yes. right in saying that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we've just done four weeks of Waybot, everyone. Hooray! <laughs> Celebrating our, our birthday month, which was technically, what day is this? Our birthday was this week. Wow. Jeff. Wow, 10 yeah, years ago we're, this week. We're recording this, we're recording this in 22nd, and I think our first episode was released on the 19th of June, 2009. Um, yeah, so it was this week. Happy, happy 10th birthday, Wade Watt. We are taking next week off, and then we'll be back in two weeks with uh, an episode of the regular Wade Watt, where who knows what's going to happen to the world of comics by then. We can but hope that it will still exist. Maybe, maybe everything won't. It, it's not mine to say, but because this is a drock, uh, Jeff has to sing us out. Indeed. Uh, so, <coughs> drock, you're under arrest, citizen. Report to the Isocubes, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>